Well, good morning. Good to see all of you here. I am so excited to begin a brand new series with you that will take us all the way up through Christmas that I pray if this preacher doesn't mess it up will be a great encouragement for you because God's Word brings great encouragement. So if you have your phone with you or if you're watching from home and you'd like to share this with a friend as we start what for the next eight weeks will be a deep dive into the most uh, popular, perhaps, certainly the most well-known poem in all of Scripture. And we're going to talk about how to live at peace. We're going to talk about tranquility. We're going to talk about living a settled, satisfied, fearless, focused, victorious, grounded sense of well-being. And we're going to talk about living that way even in the middle of a world that maybe seems like it's coming apart. I don't know if that's relevant to you or not, but I suspect it probably is, or maybe it will be at some point in the future. You know, back in 2014, so let's go back seven years. Slate Magazine published an article at the end of that year, and here was the title of it, Everything We Got Mad About in 2014. That sounds like something that would bring you to peace, doesn't it? These are all the things, and believe it or not, they had one outrageous thing that you could get angry about that happened on every single day in 2014. Fast forward a few years to 2017, and that national disposition was starting to have an increasing effect on our population. The National Institute of Mental Health, during that year, had a study that they conducted in the previous year, which was, incidentally, the year I came to Covenant, and they said, in the year 2016, 19.1% of U.S. adults were diagnosed with some kind of anxiety disorder, and that the rate among adolescents in that same year was almost 32%. 8.3% of those suffered from what they called severe impairment. Another study came out concurrent with that out of Great Britain. Sir Michael Marmot published, uh, was published actually by our own American Psychological Association, and it said Americans are overworked, they're unhealthy, and they're anxious. Sir Marmot pointed out that although we spend two and a half times the amount of money on medical care that our friends in Great Britain do, we are still less healthy. And that's evidenced in everything from our rates of diabetic and high blood pressure diagnoses to just outright heart disease and cancer. And there's also been a, a sharp increase in the middle of all this lack of health and, and, and running around and all this anxiety, a sharp increase in the number of people who work two jobs. I'm not talking about a brief side hustle. I'm not talking about something in the summer if you're an educator. I'm not talking about contract work. I'm talking about two, either one full-time, one part-time, or maybe perhaps two separate full-time jobs so that you are literally working round the clock. Vermont described Americans as nomadic society on a treadmill. I wonder how many people feel that way. They're in front of me right now. Or maybe you're watching from home and you're like, yeah, that kind of feels like my life right now. There doesn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel. And then furthermore, we've discovered, as some of you I'm sure know now, that all that hard work hasn't really put us in a better financial position. The average credit card debt in the average home exceeds $6,000. The average interest rate on that debt is 16.28%. That's a total of $807 billion of consumer debt across 500 million credit card accounts. That's where we're at. In fact, U.S. mortgage debt alone now totals $16.5 trillion with a T. Dollars. That's how much money we owe. And so if you feel this morning like your life is out of control, like you're some kind of hamster that's always running on a treadmill, I can tell you from the start, you've got company. And they're probably sitting pretty close to you as well. We live in a culture that at this moment is unsatisfied, tired, scatterbrained, frightened, outraged, defeated, and grumpy. 
And all of that was true before 2020 happened. So what do you think's happened since then? You know, I, I was reading an article not long ago. We, we moved through everything we moved through as a congregation over the last, say, 18 or so months. And, and, and I'll tell you, a few times, and some of y'all remembered, I remember looking at y'all and going, hey, just, just stop being babies. Let's lower our heads. Let's persevere. And, and while the, the aim of that might have been good, I want us to keep our heads up. I want us to be faithful to Jesus in times such as these. Uh, I thought after I read an article last week by David French in the Dispatch, uh, he, he summarized all the layers of things that happened to us over the last year. And when I read the paragraph that I'm about to read to you, it all of a sudden occurred to me, you know, I think I might owe God's people an apology because it was tough last year. Because I, I, I don't know, maybe I had in my mind thinking, well, there's other generations and they've come and gone. They've dealt with harder stuff than this. But, but see if, if this sounds like perhaps some of the most difficult times you've ever experienced or that our nation has ever experienced even in the last century. This is again from David French. 2020 started out like 1974 with impeachment. It then became 1918 with a global pandemic which led to 1929, a stock market crash, and then transformed into 1968 with massive urban unrest. Since then, things got worse. We moved into 1876, a viciously disputed election, followed it up with another 1974, a second impeachment, and then experienced 1975, a lost war and a panicked evacuation. And I haven't even mentioned January 6th, which is the closest we've come to 1861 in my life. Sounds like well, wherever you're at on the political, ideological spectrum, like when you think about the way all that got layered up and piled on us, that's a lot to deal with, isn't it? That's an awful lot to deal with. Now, this is the reason that I think God's Word in Psalm 23 is going to bring some great news to us over the next eight weeks, because this is what it teaches us if we dare to believe it. All that stuff that happened, all the things that still surround us, all the difficulty that you may deal with in your life, in your marriage, with your children and family, none of that has to change at all for you as a follower of Jesus to be able to live at peace. Did you know that? None of it. I'm not saying I wish it would or, or that it wouldn't. I, I, I really wish it would change. But here's the good news. It doesn't have to change. God has an answer to our troubled souls in this most famous poem in all of Scripture. You know, I, there's a reason, brothers and sisters, that we turn to this passage when we're standing at the graveside and we're mourning the loss of a loved one. There's something about these divinely inspired words that brings calm in a moment when we need it most. And the more I have read this psalm in preparation really over the summer as I was putting this series together, the more I become convinced God doesn't want us just popping this poem like a pill when we feel hurt. God wants us to regularly ingest this thing, almost like a multivitamin, to make us ready. He wants us to internalize this message so that good or bad or, or ugly, whatever's going on around us, there's a peace within. And that's what we're going to spend the next several weeks seeking to pull out of these words. And it's based on the author's own life. So I think that's probably the intent here. We, we don't know exactly when David wrote this, but most likely... Uh, based on the references in the poem itself, he wrote it after his time as a shepherd. So he's probably already king. He's probably already dealing with matters of state and doing all of these things. And he's probably looking back on simpler times. Anybody in here ever done that? You look back on a simpler moment. Maybe you're married and, and you get into a fight with your spouse and you go, man, it was so much better when I was single. 
Maybe you've got a spouse and there's some children living in your home and you love them, but there are times when you go, man, life was so much simpler when they were not here, right? Maybe there's something else going on in your life. You, I, I was making, I'm making more money now than I've ever made in my life, but it just seems like the margins never right. It's like my income goes up, but my expenses and my liabilities tend to do that too. You, know, you own a home now, and you wish you could rent again. Yes, I know all the money was going to a landlord, but gum! at least when an appliance failed, I had somebody to call. Now it's just me I'm telling you, whoever got to came up with this American dream crap is insane. You ever felt that way, homeowners? Yeah. That's where a lot of us are. We're looking back to a simpler time, pining for a simpler moment, now, here's the difference between doing that and doing what David is doing here. Now, everything he refers to here uses his past experience, that simpler time as a shepherd, as a metaphor. But everything he refers to is also in the present tense. This is his current disposition. Guys, David is not saying, man, I wish I could go back to being a shepherd again. It was so much simpler. Let me tell you what he is saying. God's presence right now in the middle of everything that surrounds me sets my soul at peace in exactly the same way that it did when I was a mere shepherd. Brothers and sisters, that's a peace that refreshes. It helps us focus on what's important. It prepares you for eternity. It will remove your fear. It will make you righteous, and it will give you victory. And we start today with the first step in how to get there. And that's with assuming a disposition of satisfaction. Look at verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's bold. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I am fully supplied in every way. How many people would say, yeah, I have never in my life felt that way. I wish I could be there. It's like there's always something else. I've never, there's never been a time in my life where I was at such peace that I said, I don't need another thing. And the thing is, this tends to be the case, regardless of how rich or poor you are, regardless of how sick or, or healthy you are. The eccentric billionaire Howard Hughes was once asked, how much more do you need before it will finally be enough? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. That was his answer. And if you ever wanted to, to extinguish the want in your soul, David tells you from experience how, how you get there. We learn from this very first phrase of this poem that to be at peace means first and foremost to live in a state of complete satisfaction. Let me share with you the three ways that David tells us we can get there. Number one, we have to revere the shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, to revere somebody means you hold them in high regard. And, and the way that often works itself out is there is such high regard with which you hold them that if they enter a room, there's nobody else there. Amy and I were in Houston a couple of weeks ago. The ambassador to the United States from a Central Asian country who we were expecting to be able to meet with walks into the room, and there's about 30 of us in the room at the time. We all cease our conversations. We all turn toward this gentleman. We all move toward this gentleman. That's reverence. That, that's what it looks like, right? You get all the attention, 
right? Or if there's someone you admire, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's a civic leader or a musician or something, and they step into the room and all of a sudden you realize that you're in the presence of someone that you deeply admire and they get all of your attention. My wife got that from me last Sunday night right in this very room. We had a special event for our older adult population, welcoming them back after, after, uh, after COVID. It was a black tie optional event. And so there was just great. We had a jazz band here on stage. And there was dancing and there was all kinds of things. And I was running late. I had a meeting at our local fire department that ran a little longer than I thought it was going to. And so I called her and she said, well, I'm already dressed. Somebody needs to welcome the people when they come in. I'm going to go on down there and you just meet me there. And so I did. I went home. I put that monkey suit on. And then when I rolled into the north parking lot and I walked into the foyer right out here and I saw my wife of 27 years. And I got to tell you, I love y'all, but I didn't see nobody else. Right? Nobody else. I just I saw her and I went, how you doing? Right? It just, that's, yeah. And she, she. I don't know. She, she blushed a little bit at the last service. She's not here today, right, right now for this service. I can say what I want to. Just there wasn't anybody else in the room. You ever felt that way about your beloved? Sometimes that happens. To revere someone means they get the attention that nobody else gets. Nobody else. And that's what we see David doing in this poem. There's an old hymn that actually says this, turn your eyes upon Jesus. You've heard this? Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That, that's the, the attitude, that's the disposition we see being expressed here by David. My shepherd is the Lord. Now, there are three different words in Hebrew that can be translated Lord. David could have used any of those here. He could have used the word Adonai, which would have emphasized God's sovereignty and lordship over all of creation, which is my preferred word because I like to know if I'm not going to be in control of something that there's someone else that I can trust that's in control of that. Like when I get on an airplane this Wednesday and I fly, I, I actually would love to meet the pilot and get his or her background and learn how long he or she has been in the air and have they ever been in an emergency situation. They won't let me interview pilots, right? So I'm just there with, with whoever's on there. And, and it, it makes me nervous sometimes. We were, we were headed to we were headed to Central America once and a pilot comes up disheveled because I know if you got to fly anywhere this week, I'm sorry. Um, I, I don't want to discourage you, but this is just reality, right? And he came up, he was all disheveled and it, it, like it, it, pilots have those kinds of mornings too, where they wake up late or they wake up on the wrong side of the bed or they, maybe God forbid they didn't get enough sleep. And he walks up and he's trying to adjust his uniform and everything. And he looks at the flight attendant. I'm standing right here next to him. And he goes, is that my plane? And she said, yeah. And he said, and where am I going? Managua. Got it. And then he went to get on the plane, and I went, oh, Lord Jesus, help us, right? I want to know there's somebody in control. And so when I see the word Adonai, I know in the Hebrew language that indicates strong emphasis on sovereignty and the lordship and control over everything. When the world is falling apart, I know God's got this, but that's not the word David uses. He also doesn't use the word Elohim. That would have been a more generic term that the Hebrews used. That would have emphasized deity, the fact that there's a God controlling all of this and that, that, that is, is covering this for us. Here's the term he uses. It's the term Yahweh. This was the personal covenant name that God gave exclusively to his people Israel. 
Now, the motif of God the shepherd is actually pretty common throughout both Testaments. You can find it in Genesis 48. You can find it in Psalm 28. You can find it in Revelation chapter 7. And so when David uses this metaphor, he's not, in, he's, he's not the inventor of it. He's standing in a long line of people that have already used this. But what he is doing is he's personalizing it. He's saying, the Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd is Yahweh. He knew how important that was because he had a background as a shepherd. And he knew, as many of you know who work in 4-H or you just go to the county fair, you can tell, can't you, who takes care of their livestock and who doesn't. And David knew the well-being of a sheep depended solely on the kind of person who owned that sheep. And so if the shepherd is kind and gentle and loving and sacrificial, selfless in his devotion to the flock, his flock is going to flourish. But conversely, if he's hard and cruel and cared very little for the sheep, they're going to struggle. They're going to suffer hardship if he neglects them. Perhaps they're even going to starve to death. And so when David says, Yahweh is my shepherd, he speaks with this sense of reverence, strong admiration, strong devotion. Look who my owner is. Look who my caretaker is. Look who provides everything for me. And here's even better news, guys. 3,000 years after David pens these words, you and I stand here in this moment in history and look 2,000 years back uh, and see more even about the character and identity of our God. We get a more specific name and even in a more intimate connection than David had. How do I know that? Because Jesus said the following in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. It's me. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Paul will later apply this truth to our lives in this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then comes this rationale. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously with him give us all things? And so when you wonder, do I have everything I need? Do I have reason when taking stock of my life to be unsatisfied with what God has given me? You can know on the basis of God's word this fact. He gave his son for you. What on earth would make you think he would keep anything else when he gave that? What would make you think that? This is our Lord. Go out. To, well, you won't be able to do it tonight because it's raining. Next time there's a really clear night like there was Friday night. And uh, some, you know, you ever done that? You go outside and you look up and there's just this blanket of stars that like makes you forget why you went outside. And you just kind of stand there and stare at it. This vast expanse of space that the Lord allows us to be able to see with our naked eye and, and some, the light from those stars. And then I start thinking about how far away they are. And, and you calculate that with the speed of light. And then you realize, man, the light I'm looking at right now took so long to get to me that when it left its destination at whatever star that is, Isaiah was still walking the planet. And you think, this is mind-blowing and amazing. And I look at that and I think, this is our God. Astronomers tell us that it's, it, if it were possible to take our most powerful telescope to the nearest neighboring star, which is a star called Alpha Centauri, and then look back, that telescope's not powerful enough to let us see the earth because it doesn't carry and reflect light the way that star does. And I want you to think about that, that the creator of that universe has declared himself to be a shepherd to you and to me. If you belong to him, 
He has endeared himself to you in such a way that you're able to say exactly what David says here. The Lord is my shepherd. Satisfaction, brothers and sisters, it starts there. If you wonder why you can't find it anywhere else, if you wonder why the want in your soul has never been extinguished, it's because there's nothing else and no one else that is infinite like that. It's only our God. Those toys you get at Christmas, they eventually get boring, don't they? That college degree that you earned years ago is probably shoved in a drawer somewhere. If you don't have a private office with it hanging on the wall, and there's probably dust on top of the frame if it's hanging up. It got old. You get tired of looking at stuff every once in a while. That new car smell wears off just almost as quickly as the resale value of that thing when the back wheels leave the lot. I wanted it, I got it, and now I'm on to something else. That big event, that big destination vacation, the destination wedding, the graduation, even if it's everything you expected, Monday morning's coming. You got to go back to life, don't you? You got to go back to life. Listen, nothing like that in this world will ever ultimately satisfy you because everything else in this world besides our God has a shelf life. It's going to die off. But when you turn your eyes on the shepherd, that hymn proves true. Everything else becomes strangely dim. You can still enjoy it. Enjoy the vacation. Enjoy the new car if you can afford it. Enjoy life. But those things are no longer ultimate to you. You don't find your identity in them because you revere something and someone greater. That's how you start down this path of having peace. Now, coupled with that is, a relationship with that same shepherd. I don't just hold him in high regard. I don't just see him as the ultimate blessing. I see him in a possessive sense. Notice the possessive tone here. The Lord is my shepherd. Our relationship cuts both ways. David says, not only do I belong to him, he belongs to me. I remember the first time I met my daughter, Gracie. Um, Ten years prior, the Lord had given us a passion for adoption and to take a kid from China that we wanted to adopt. We wanted to adopt a daughter and we wanted her to be from China. And the Lord just put that on our hearts. We had some very wise older people that told us who had adopted children of their own. They asked us why we wanted to do it. And we said, well, we've done the research. We know the, we know the statistics for young girls that age out of the system over there. We're familiar with how all that works. We want to, you know, and it was about rescue. It was about, we want to take care of somebody. And they, this is what they told us. They said, well, that's noble, but if that's all you got, you don't need to adopt. And I looked at them kind of surprised. And then they said this, and it would take about 10 years before we would, Amy and I would realize they're absolutely right. You don't adopt to become somebody's savior. You adopt because God has convinced you that your family is not yet complete. And you know what? 10 years later, that's exactly what happened. That facility lady that ran that facility knocked on our door and I opened it up and I saw this little girl for the first time and she was mine. 24 hours later when we signed documents that I could not read, she became mine. She bore my name. She bore my protection. She bore every single blessing that I could possibly give her as a father. But I'm going to tell you something. She didn't feel that way. Right? We, we've had that. I've told you guys this story before if you've been here and heard, heard that story. First 18 months of her life were spent in a facility, a group home, where she likely never even saw a man. 
And she sure as the devil didn't see a great big old hairy white one like me. So she didn't like me very much. She didn't want to be around me a whole lot. But I kept working, and over time, she started to trust me. Now, there's one moment where I knew, okay, this is going to be just fine. It was one of those rare Sundays when I wasn't preaching somewhere else in the world, and I was attending with my family, the church, precious group of folks that we went to church with in Maryland. And I turned the corner to see my daughter looking down the hall, and she saw me with one of her little friends, and she just bolted like sprint, full-on sprint, all the way down that hall. And she leapt up, quite presumptuously, actually. She assumed I was going to catch her. She still does a lot of presumptuous stuff like that. She just assumes Daddy's going to take care of it. That's all right. And when she landed and I grabbed her, she looked back at her friend, and she said, My Daddy. Yeah, I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> right? That's when I knew. See, it's not just that she belongs to me. Those, those, those wise people that, that gave us that, that advice 10 years ago, man, they were so right. It's not just about being a Savior. The family was incomplete. And that young lady completed my family. And it's not just that she belonged to me. I belong to her. And I want you to think about that because David is referring to our God with that same level of intimacy. He's mine. Satisfaction, the peace it brings, it requires that kind of relationship with the Lord, requires that time with the Lord, requires that time in his word. And when those difficult situations hit, you got somebody whose arms you can jump into. And so dive deeply into his word, spend time with him in prayer. And listen, we, we're not the kind of church that thinks that that's always going to fix everything. All right. Pray more, read the Bible more. I recognize that. I've recognized them all. It doesn't solve every problem. We believe if you are depressed, if you are suffering from anxiety, we believe here at Covenant very strongly in the importance of mental health. We, I do not find in any way the advice of a qualified therapist to contradict anything about your faith and you following Jesus. God gave us those men and women as a gift in our time. But I will tell you this, it does matter how you spend your time and attention. You can see the best therapist in the world, but if you don't know the Lord, if you don't spend time in his word, if you don't get to know him, if there's not that level of intimacy, if you spend more time scouring conspiratorial websites and scrolling social media and looking at all kinds of other outlets and doing more of that kind of thing than you do in the word of God, and then you come sit in my office and tell me you're depressed or that you have anxiety, I don't have to ask too many questions to learn why you're so high strung. The Lord's given us a way that those things can be subsided. Some things never change, and one of those things is this. Peace and satisfaction comes by pursuing the kind of intimacy that the Lord gives to David here and that David speaks about here. I've seen it in my father's life over the last few months. He's married to my mother for 50 years. We're coming up, and I mean, it's just days away. This is the first anniversary of, of my mother's passing. Dad's still grieving, as it would be expected for a man who's been married to the same woman for half a century 
to grief. It's been heavy. But he has handled it so incredibly well. And there are a lot of reasons for that. He's got a lot of support. He is doing a lot of the right things. But I'm going to tell you what's at the base of it. If I call my daddy tomorrow morning, I would bet my piece of Shepherdstown real estate, I'm going to find him reading his Bible. And here's the thing, guys. That Bible's not a pill he popped when mama died. That Bible's something he ingested his entire life. His entire life, before mama got sick, before uh, when she was well, all the way back when things were all well with his family and good, my father loved the word of God. And as a result of that, he is processing his grief now in a way that testifies to what he really believes. I have a shepherd. I have someone who will never change. I have a woman that I loved, that I am grieving heavily, that for the last half a century, for the moment God gave her to me, until the moment that God decided that our marriage would terminate with her death, I still have that God. I miss her. I long for her. I am grieving, but I do not grieve as someone who has no hope because there is another who has always been with me and always will, who will never leave me and never forsake me and he is mine more than my wife was mine that's the relationship that david's talking about here now here's the other side of that coin if you don't have that relationship with this god that david is describing you will never be satisfied you're always going to be in want and so what you need is that relationship that's accompanied by reverence and this is where the reward comes from. Look at this last phrase. I shall not want. I can be rich or I can be poor. I can be sick or I can be healthy. I can be married or I can be single. It can be raining or the sun can be shining. I have a shepherd and he is all I need. Now, one of the fallacies that, that we have to work really, really hard to overcome in our culture is this idea that if you're prospering, if you have good health, if financially you're doing well, that that's a significant mark of God's blessing. Now, here's what we know from Scripture. James 1.17 says the following. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It's coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so all the gifts, including the material gifts like wealth and good health and high quality of life, those are great gifts from a good God. We should all be thankful for those things. But at the same time, let us not confuse the goodness of God with the blessing of God. Let us not conclude that everything is well and God is happy with me merely because things are going well in my life. Friends, Hugh Hefner was the founder of Playboy magazine, was worth more than $50 million at the time of his death. Ted Turner, who famously once quipped that Christianity is for losers, is currently worth over $2 billion. I should not have to tell you that those two creeps are not kinds of examples that you need to follow. One of the wealthiest churches in Asia Minor was Laodicea. And Jesus said to them through his servant, John, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. In Mark chapter 10, there's this rich young ruler who appears to have it all together. The kind of guy who, if he and his family were to come through those doors out there because our, our first impressions team does such an excellent job and they want to grab folks and welcome folks and make them feel welcome. But, but it's the kind of person, you know, they, they come in, they'd be very well dressed. Their kids would probably all have matching clothes on and they would look like they got it all together. They just got done with their teeth being whitened like all of them at the same time. 
And if you have your teeth whitened, that's fine. All right. I'm just saying, they look like they got it all together and everything. Else. It's the kind of family that if they walked in here, most of our leaders would go, oh, yeah, we need that family here. And maybe we do. I don't know. But we go an awful lot on appearances, don't we? Here's what Jesus said to that man. Mark 10, 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Your satisfaction, you think it comes from adding me to your list of possessions. Guys, this is the same reason why we love to hear NASCAR champions and Super Bowl champions and different athletes and singers and other people get up and give their testimony. It's wonderful when God saves a soul like that, but it is every bit just as wonderful when God saves a soul that nobody knows who they are. Because the issue is, Christ has saved me. The issue is, I have a shepherd. The issue is not, hey guys, look, I got five NASCAR trophies. That's what will happen if you follow Jesus. Because it might not happen. It might not happen if you follow Jesus. And so what's happening with this rich young ruler? Jesus says, you think that you're, you just want to add me to your long list of accomplishments, and that's not how it works. You like one thing. And that one thing you lack makes everything else you have irrelevant. So here's the really simple message. If the Lord is your shepherd, your reality right now, whether or not you feel this way, your reality is this. If the Lord is your shepherd, you lack nothing. If the Lord is not your shepherd, you have nothing. At the end of the age, you're going, to determine, you're going to find out how real that is. That is simply reality. And, and here's why. The master in your life determines your destiny. So if it's money, if it's property, if it's family and relationships even, you're going to spend your whole life either pursuing what of that you don't yet have or you're going to be so obsessed with trying to cling to and hang on to what you do have that you're never going to be satisfied because temporal things only bring temporal pleasure. You know, kids grow up. You know that, right? You can't, well, I just wish I could keep them. That's not why God gave them to you. He didn't give them to you to keep them in some bubble, keep them safe and keep them there. He, he intends for you to create spiritual warriors out of those men and women. We did a series on that on parenting about a couple years ago. But go back to our podcast site and listen. Marriages, even if they're healthy, are temporal. God has given me mind-blowing, wonderful, indescribable, temporal pleasure from my marriage relationship. And it wasn't until I understood that temporal part that Amy and I were able to have the kind of relationship that we have right now. You know why? Because we were trying to put each other, probably me more than her, up on some throne setting up expectations you know what you know what you're going to find out about your spouse if you try to put them somewhere where only jesus belongs you're going to find out what a horrible deity they are they're just not my wife is a wonderful godly woman she's an awful god and she would say the same thing about me and it was i don't know 12 13 14 years ago sitting in the office of a very wise counselor ourselves before we realized that, and each of us had to do some repentance on that front, making just a little bit too much of each other. Because when you do that, the expectation level goes up above and beyond what your spouse is able to give to you. Marriage 
is temporal. My children are wonderful, temporal blessing. None of them are going to provide every need I have. None of them will bring me the sort of satisfaction that King David speaks of here. But when all of your focus and hope and confidence is placed in the fact that the Lord of heaven and earth calls you his own, you will in that moment know what it felt like for David when he said, I need nothing. That's the offer that God makes to you today, to be totally satisfied, but only the Lord can give you both. You ever wondered that? What would your life be like if you never wanted anything else? No matter what came your way or what you lost, that, that internal sense of serenity rooted in complete satisfaction in a sovereign God would never change. What would it be like to live emotionally and spiritually untethered to every temporary thing that you cling to right now? Now, I'm under no delusions that we're all going to get there in this fallen world. But the closer we get to the Lord, the closer we'll get to that ideal until we're finally glorified and made complete when we see him. That's a radical message, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And these are radical times in which to apply something like that. We are promised peace even in a world that seems to be coming apart, and it begins when we can say he is enough. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So let me give you a really simple question as I close. It was a question that was posed by the Holy Spirit many, many years ago when an older brother of mine in ministry, who I got to spend a considerable amount of time with um, in Houston a couple weeks ago, Holy Spirit asked him this question. Ministry wasn't going well. Life wasn't going well. He was lamenting what could have been. He was pining for something else. And the Lord asked him that question. And since that moment, I was in high school when all that happened with him. Since that moment, through his example and my own experience, the Lord has asked me that question multiple times. And so now I'm just going to drop it on you and let you go home with it. When will Jesus be enough for you? Let's pray. Lord, you've promised us satisfaction. Forgive us for the times that we chase it in other places. And Lord, may your people, may their last desire be to live a life without having to want. May they draw, draw closer to you today. And if there's someone here who doesn't know Christ, Lord, may today be the day that they begin to walk that path to ultimate satisfaction. May they live at peace, and may it be a satisfied peace. Father, strengthen us today as we prepare to respond to your word. Help us to honor you in that response, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.